settle in uh, because today is the grand finale of the book of Revelation and the whole Bible itself, really. Um, so we're, we're coming down to a close in this sermon series. And I don't know about you, I'm a little bit sad uh, because the book of Revelation has really impacted me much more than I ever expected it would. And when Dan said we were going to be going through it, I did not want to be speaking out of the book of Revelation. Um, but through the process, it's really, really impacted me. And so a little bit sad to be moving on. Um, but just a little fun fact, Dan mentioned that we had just over 30 sermons from the book. And it's been basically a year that we've been going through the book of Revelation. And so that equals out to about 25, 30 hours of you guys sitting in here listening to the book of Revelation. That's like three, four solid work days of study. So I commend you guys for that. And I don't say this to put uh, what we do on a pedestal, but those 25, 30 hours of presentation comes from about 300 plus hours of study. And so Dan and I basically spent two months two solid work months studying the book of Revelation. And that's probably a conservative estimate. So that's a lot of, a lot of sermons, a lot of listening, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, a lot of praying. And the question is why? Why do we spend so much time and effort going through the book of Revelation? Hopefully, I'm, uh, hopefully you guys aren't all saying, why are we doing this? Uh, but it is an important question to ask. And I want to remind you of what Dan introduced to us last year when we started. He said that the purpose of this book is to stir us up to an enduring hope and holiness until we finally overcome in Christ, right? It's to stir you up to hope and holiness. And so that's why we've spent so much time doing this. And I didn't even realize, I'm sure Dan didn't either, um, the blessing that's promised in the beginning of the book, um, I've already begun to be able to testify to that blessing in my own life just from studying it. And so I hope you guys have felt that too. Um, but the reality is the, the text, the Lord giving this revelation to the Apostle John for us is to bless us ultimately that he may be glorified when we endure in holiness, right? So that's why we've invested so much time in this. There is a promised blessing for those who hear these words and obey them. And so this text today, it really is just um, a shorter, multiply, magnified version of that broader purpose of the book. The last chapter of the book is for the same reason. It's to stir us up to hope and holiness. I want to ask you guys, how many trials do you face on a day-to-day, -day, weekly, monthly, ongoing basis because you simply act as if Jesus isn't on the throne right now? How many situations do we put ourselves in because we have willful spiritual amnesia and even though we know Christ is ruling on the throne, we pretend that he's not and we do what we want to do and all of a sudden, there's a big boulder in front of us. How many of you guys feel that? The reality is that probably so many people in the church put themselves in front of big boulders 
because they are not hearing and obeying the words of Jesus. They're not abiding in the vine. And it's so easy for us to stray so quickly, isn't it? It's so easy. And so the point for us today, the point as we wrap up the book of Revelation, is that we would wake up. That's the point of these graphic pictures and prophetic symbols, that we would have a graphic picture in our minds of what it is to disobey Christ and what it is to obey Christ. That we would have that picture ever before us so that we don't have spiritual gospel amnesia, so that we don't act as if he's not ruling, but that we are people who are disciplined in acting as if Jesus really is ruling on his throne and really is coming back. So let's dive into the text. The board says 22. I actually want to step back into 21 um, to kind of jump on, to piggyback on what Dan preached last week. So I'm going to ask you guys to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. And I think, because this is a lot of text to get through, I think I just want to kind of work through it in sections. So would you guys read with me just uh, the first section of um, Revelation 21, 9 and following. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the, name, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Before we go any further, would you guys pray with me briefly that the Lord would help us understand these things? Holy Spirit, we want to lean into you right now, and we want to trust in your promise to bless us when we obey and so, Lord, I want to pray that, uh, that our hearts would be open to hear how we are to obey you. Lord, that you would open our ears, our minds, our spiritual eyes to be able to really understand these things. That we would be changed, that we would be sanctified, that we would be strengthened as we leave today. So, Lord, speak through me and help us to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Many of you guys probably feel the same way I do about a lot of the pictures that we've seen in Revelation where you say, man, even after we've talked through this, we've studied it, we've thought about it, there's still a lot that I don't really understand. Um, to be honest, we could spend another year going through Revelation and still have a lot to learn. But I bet you everybody in here says, at least I know one thing. I don't know about the millennium. I don't know about the rapture. I don't know about all this or that. But I know I'm going to walk on streets of gold. But I want to say to you guys, let's take a closer look at this text and see what it has to say to us, more so than just walking on streets of gold. 
So as we begin here in verses 9 and following, the first thing that we have is the, the, the pure, simple vision of the bride, right? It's just a picture of the bride of Christ. And the text describes that bride as the wife of the lamb. So what do you guys know about that picture of the bride from what we've talked about so far in Revelation? The bride is who? The church, right? The bride, going back to chapter 19, are the redeemed saints who are, who are being married to Jesus Christ, right? But as we look here at verse 9 and verse 10, notice what the angel says. He says to John, I'm going to show you the bride. I'll show you what the bride looks like. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. I hope you guys are trained by now to recognize that's a, that's a phrase that clues us into prophetic, symbolic imagery, right? The spirit is catching him up and taking him to show him something. And what does he see when he's caught up in the spirit? He's looking out from that great high mountain to see this bride, and he sees a city. Now, this is much like the other pictures in Revelation where the angel or Jesus says, here's this one thing, and it's also this other thing. It's a bride, it's a woman, it's a group of people, it's also a city. Do you guys see that? They're all meshing together, and what we have is that the angel is showing John the people of God in the picture of a city. You guys on the same page as me? You get that? The bride is the city, and the bride is the redeemed people of God. So before we go any further, I just want to argue and make the simple point that the new Jerusalem, this golden city in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, is not just a golden cube. It's actually you who are in Christ. The golden city is the bride. It's you. It's more than just about gold. It's more than just about what things are going to look like. It's actually about you and Christ. All right, so let's keep going. What does this vision mean? Anytime there's a vision, we have to stop and say, okay, what is, what is the importance of it? Why is he describing the bride like a city? It doesn't seem to make sense in our minds. But let's stop and look. He's going to give us three things. He's going to show us the materials of the city. He's going to show us... Um, the measurements of the city, and the map of the city. So we're going to walk through those three things. Starting in verse 11, the first thing we see about this bride city is that it has the glory of God and its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The next thing, down in verse 18, it says that the wall around the city was built of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And then the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like glass. 
I don't know about you guys, but I don't know what those stones look like. So I had to go through and look up pictures of all these things to even get the imagery in my mind. But what we see here is a list of beautiful, gleaming, glistening, shining, precious, rare stones. And on top of that, you have the precious metal of gold gleaming and shining like glass. So when you put together this imagery of the jasper and the gems and the gold, this is actually an ancient symbol of divinity. This takes us back to Ezekiel again. Ezekiel chapter 28. And in Ezekiel 28, there's this incredible um, prophetic message to the prince of Tyre. But in that message, there's an, an analogy to this figure who was in the Garden of Eden. And I'm not going to get into all the debate, but there's two sides, and I lean towards the minority. Dan and I are in the minority camp on this. But we believe that the, the figure in Ezekiel 28 is actually an analogy of a, of a rebellion in the divine council, namely Satan. And so what's happening in Ezekiel 28, what's being described is actually Satan, even though the text is about the prince of Tyre. And in that text, he is described as having the perfection of beauty in the garden. He is described as being a guardian cherub who is adorned with the same list of gemstones. Now, isn't that interesting? Satan is described as being adorned as the same, in the same way that the church is here in Revelation. But it's all to say that these beautiful, glimmering, luminescent gemstones are a sign of divine presence. It's all to say that in the garden, in this perfection of beauty in, in God's original creation, there was divine presence. And here again, we see the church in Revelation in the new creation has that adornment of divine presence. You who are in Christ are adorned in the beauty of divine presence, radiating with his glory. Think about that. You guys are adorned in the beauty of divine presence, even now. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 7, 6, that God's people are his chosen and treasured possession. It's that idea of a rare, precious gemstone. Chosen, treasured possession. Even the Gospels, uh, in, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven like a fine pearl of great value, right? And that pearl is so valuable that it's worth giving up everything to get. And while in one sense that, divine, or that, that valuable pearl represents knowing Christ and being with Christ, being worth more than everything, I believe it also carries this same idea that the kingdom of heaven is like this shiny, expensive pearl in that when we are in his kingdom, we are adorned with his glory. We radiate his glory because he is in our presence. Ephesians 2.10 says that those who are in Christ are God's workmanship, right? It's, it's that idea of a masterpiece, this beautiful sculpture or artwork that radiates, again, his, his beautiful, perfect work and creation. You guys in Christ are that rare, precious jewel radiating his glory. But some of you don't feel that, right? Right? Some of you don't feel chosen. 
Some of you don't feel treasured. Some of you don't feel beautiful. Some of you don't feel adorned in glory, right? Am I right? You guys agree with me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Do your feelings determine the validity and the weight of God's promise? No. No. Your feelings don't determine your worth in God's eyes. I just want to be blunt here. Um, just from a, a number of conversations that I've had with many of you, this isn't singling anybody out. This is from just listening and talking for years. There are many people in this church who, who struggle with physical, um, a physical lack of, um, of understanding your beauty in Christ. And what I mean by that is that because you, you, you don't feel that your body is beautiful, you don't feel like you are beautiful, okay? And I'm not going to try to derail here into the, into the modern um, body image self-empowerment movement. That's not my goal here. My goal is to say that knowing where you guys are, there are a lot of you who struggle with this. You don't feel beautiful. You don't feel healthy. You don't feel strong. Maybe it's physical sickness. Maybe it's injuries. Maybe it's uh, you, you feel weak. Maybe it's you feel like you're getting old and gaining weight, and that's it. Guys, the fact is that your feelings and this body that is wasting away does not determine your beauty and worth in the eyes of God, and his redeemed people are adorned in his glory. That affects the way we live our lives. Think about a wedding. My sister-in-law was just married recently. You guys all know when you go to a wedding, what, what is one of the climactic moments of the wedding other than the final, you may kiss the bride? Before that, what is the moment that everybody looks for, that everybody hopes for? Before the cake. Before that. Yes. It's the bride coming down the aisle. Everybody stands, the music changes, and everybody's attention turns to the bride. That's what's happening here in the text. The attention is being drawn to the bride. The reality is this is not about a golden city. This is about Christ exalting you to exalt his own glory. Because when Jesus goes out and redeems that unfaithful woman. Think about Hosea, right? God told Hosea to go out and redeem his unfaithful wife, to buy her back from slavery to himself. And was she faithful after that? No. Think about Boaz, who came into the life of this, uh, this poor refugee who had nothing, there was not an equal playing field in either of those cases. The bride, honestly, in both of those cases was nothing to celebrate. You know, often in our modern day weddings, the bride and the groom's kind of e equal playing field. Um, we don't have the same idea of the groom going out and rescuing the bride to marry her, but that's what's happening in the Bible. The bride has been rebellious and filthy and unfaithful. She has been lost and broken, 
And Christ came and got her and rescued her and redeemed her and is now putting her on display for all to see her beauty, your beauty, and it exalts him. It exalts him and brings him glory because he is the one who's rescued you. That's the importance of these gemstones in the New Jerusalem. What about the measurements? What in the world does that have to do with anything? Let's look at verse 12. The city had a great high wall. There's 12 gates. There's 12 angels standing at the gates. And there's 12 names on the gates. And underneath the gates are 12 foundations with 12 more names. And the angel who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, and the wall was built of jasper. So what in the world does the measurement have to do with anything? If you think about this literally, that's about the size from Philly to Denver to Mexico City to Jamaica back to Philly, extending upward into the edge of outer space. That's about the, the literal size of what's being described here. But I would argue that we're not supposed to worry about the literal measurements. Right? Every time we see a number in Revelation, we've got to think past the literal meaning of it. And so this number of 12,000 stadia, it's this idea of 1,000, a number of fullness, of magnitude, multiplied by 12, the number of the fullness of God's people. And so what you have here is this 12,000, which is to say that the city is great and complete. It is the complete fulfillment of God's people. And it's this cube, right? It's, it's this perfectly symmetrical, finished, complete work of art. That's what those specific measurements have meaning. Um, that's where they find their meaning. But also it's this 144 cubit wall. Is it 144 cubits tall? If that's the case, it's completely disproportionate to the height of the city. If it's 144 cubits thick, again, it's completely disproportionate to the size of the city. But it is to say that the wall that surrounds the city is made up of God's people, right? It's the very foundation of the city is God's people. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, these redeemed people are the foundation of the city. That's what it means. But there's also this, just the act of measure, measuring. Disregard the measurements themselves. The act of measuring, we talked about this before in Revelation 11. Do you remember what it means? What is the significance of the angel measuring something? Does anybody remember? All right. The significance of this measuring is marking the boundaries of what will be destroyed and what will be preserved. So in chapter 11, John is told to measure only the altar and the inner court of the temple. But here, taking us back to Ezekiel 47, 
the angel is measuring the entirety of the city. The entire thing is marked for protection. The entire thing is preserved from destruction. And so the angel's act of measuring is to say that God's people are perfectly protected. The measuring of the city means that God's people are perfectly complete and perfectly protected. Now, if you remember chapter 11, the Gentiles are trampling the outer court in that part of the vision, right? Guys, we've got to hang on to this promise of perfectly complete security as we walk out our witness in the here and now. Because right now, we're not there yet. Right now, we're in the outer court that isn't protected physically. Our souls are protected eternally in that throne room of God, right? But right now, we're in the outer court. So we've got to hang on to this promise that God's people are eternally and perfectly protected and complete in this vision of the new Jerusalem. But what does the map of the city tell us? What are the things featured in the city? Whenever you go to visit a new city, what do you usually do? You look at a map, right? You want to figure out the landmarks. Maybe you want to go check out the tourist sites, the physical architectural features of the city, right? These things are important to us, and no less so in this text. The physical features of the city have a lot to say to us. So look with me at verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The first feature in the map of this heavenly city is that there is no physical temple because the temple is the Lord's presence dwelling with his people, right? The, testi- the, the temple throughout the Old Testament is the, the temporary protected place where God's glory dwells to protect people 
from being consumed by his glory, right? There was a veil. There were walls around it. There was a procedure to enter it. But what did Christ do when he died on the cross? He tore what? He tore the veil. The curtain was torn. And we have access to his throne. And this right here is the picture of that. Earlier in Revelation, Jesus promises to those who overcome, I will make you a pillar in my temple. In other words, the people of God are the foundation upon which his glory rests. There's no building that we have to meet in. There's no temple, no sanctuary, no tabernacle, no church, because we are together in his presence. There's no physical temple. The second thing that we notice in verse 23 is that there are no lamps. Can you imagine what our city would be like with no lamps? Think about that. Chaos. This city has no lamps. There's no need of the sun or the moon because the glory of God is its light. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. He is in heaven and his glory is shining. And in this new creation, in the new heaven and earth, there will be no need for lamps. But there's also no locks. How many of you leave your car unlocked and your house unlocked? Exactly. In this world, security is important because there are people who break in and steal, people who take advantage, people who are violent, right? But in this city where God's glory dwells, no lock is needed. And it's so interesting because even as we just talked about the walls being great and high with guardian angels standing at the gates are this display of God's protection, but the gates are open because there is no enemy to invade. We are eternally protected and there are no locks even needed. There's no night. We don't shut the gates when we go to sleep at night because there is no night. God's presence is shining forever and we don't need to go to sleep. Maybe we will, I don't know. But we don't need to because we're being sustained by that glory and by that presence. And there's no one to break in and harm. There's no locks. There's no lamps. There's no temple. And there's nothing unclean in verse 27. I love my son. He's very particular about a lot of things. And one of the things that I agree with him on is he always wants to know why there's so much trash in our city. And I never have a good answer to give him. But in this city and our cities in this world, there's a lot of uncleanness. And I'm not talking about just garbage. There's a lot of uncleanness in the way people live their lives, right? That's what the Bible talks, means when it talks about uncleanness. It's living your life in a way that is not holy, that does not align with God's character or his word. That is what is unclean. And in this city, there will be nothing unclean. As I was thinking about this, I, I had a thought and I had to look it up and Caitlin actually spotted me looking this up while I was in the middle of this thought process and was like, what in the world are you doing? I was trying to figure out how antibacterial cleaners kill the bacteria because, <laughs> because the Bible says there's going to be nothing unclean. And so I'm trying to just think about this. What happens when you spray antibacterial cleaner 
on bacteria. Does anybody know? It breaks down the, the fatty acids of the cell, so there's no defenses there, and it kills the cell, right? That's what happens. When there is bacteria in the presence of antibacterial cleaner, what happens? It dies, it is consumed, it disappears. That's what's happening here. In the presence of God, nothing unclean can exist. It just can't happen. And people often want to use God's judgment as an argument of why we shouldn't believe in God or follow God. But if you zoom out and think about it from the picture of antibacterial cleaner, think about that, guys. God is so holy and so perfect and so far above us. If we came into his presence unclean as bacteria, we would be consumed. Right? And that's where the importance of the resurrection of Christ lies. This is not just following a movement. We actually need to be transformed and resurrected so that we're not bacteria anymore, so that we are changed into the image of God so that we can survive in his presence. That's what's happening when we place our trust and our faith in Christ. He's actually giving us his spirit that protects us in the presence of the all-consuming fire of his glory. There's nothing unclean there because it cannot be in his presence. Ephesians 5.13 talks about um, light exposing the works of darkness. It's the same thing. What happens when you shine a light in the dark? The darkness disappears. Darkness cannot exist in light. Bacteria can't exist in antibacterial cleaner and sin cannot exist in God's presence. It's consumed. And so we must come to Christ for that transformation and the resurrection body that can stand in his presence. The next thing we see going into uh, chapter 22 is the river of life. And this picture of the river and of the tree take us back to Genesis 1 and the beauty of God's original creation where there was no sin. Everything was as it should be, right? This beautiful river flowing. And Ezekiel 47 talks about the river bringing life to wherever it goes, right? And here in the text, it's the river of life that is causing the tree of life to grow. And it's not just one tree of life like in the Garden of Eden. It's actually a forest of trees of life. There's full access in heaven to the tree and the water of life. But does that mean we're just going to be eating fruit from this tree? Maybe, but it's more than that. It's more than that because, again, in biology, how does a tree survive? It receives what? Sunlight. But in heaven, there's no sun, right? So how's this tree living? Anybody? How's the tree alive? How's it bearing fruit if there's no sun? God's glory and presence is giving the tree life through the water, which in John chapter 7 is what? What is the river of living water? It's, it's God's spirit, right? 
This he said because the spirit hadn't been poured out yet. The river of living water is his spirit. It's his presence. And here in heaven, the river of the water of life is God's very presence flowing from the throne of God and the lamb. The tree and the water and our very life comes from his presence. Eternal life isn't like a token that he gives us. Eternal life is actually to be with him. That's what happened to Moses when he was on the mountain in in Exodus, right? He didn't eat or drink for 40 days because he was in the presence of God. He didn't need to. And that's what's happening in the marriage of the lamb to his bride. We receive all we need from just his presence. Eternal, unending life forever and ever comes by being with God, seeing him face to face. There's one other thing that is lacking in the city. And it's in verse 3. There will no longer be anything cursed in this city. The curse of sin makes it so that bearing fruit must always require hard work, toil, labor, pain, right? Bearing the fruit of the earth requires pain because of the curse of sin. Bearing the fruit of a child requires pain because of the curse of sin. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be nothing cursed. Can you imagine what it would be like to never have to struggle, to labor, to toil, to bear fruit in anything? What's being pictured here is perfect shalom the completeness, the fullness, the way things should be, which we don't even know. We don't even understand what that could be like. But that's what it is to be in the presence of God. There will be no curse. There will be nothing unclean. So what does this picture, um, how does it apply to us? What do we do with this information? I want to read from verses 6 into the end, and then we'll close it out. He said to me, after he reveals this beautiful truth, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon, and blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evil doers still do evil, and the filthy be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. 
outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with you. Amen. The application of the meaning of this picture of the city says that your holiness matters. Your holiness and obedience to the things of this book matter. So much so that there are five repeated exhortations to obey them in this last section. The greater picture that we have in this city is not just the bride, it's not just a city, it's actually meant to stand against the picture of the great prostitute in chapter 17, the, ba the city Babylon. The city of Jerusalem and the city of Babylon are put next to each other for us to see in graphic detail what it means to be loyal to this world and to be loyal to Christ. And what happens to those who are loyal to Babylon? Again, the, the, the picture of a prostitute is chosen specifically because of the way that they are treated in our own world, in our own understanding. They are used, they are abused, they are manipulated, they are cast out. And that is the experience of anyone who is loyal to this world. Satan is using them and abusing them and manipulating them to wage war against Christ. And when he is finished, remember the prophecy of chapter 17, he will kill them. He will be done with them. Those who are loyal to this world have no protection. But what is, how does Christ treat his bride? She is honored. She is adorned in beauty. She is protected. She is exalted. She's put on display. And she is protected forever with eternal life. That's how Christ treats his bride. And when you put those two pictures together, it is meant to call you to holiness. We cannot wander into the lifestyle of Babylon. Nothing unclean can exist in God's presence, and in the here and now, we must run from it. Your holiness matters. Think about all the exhortations in the beginning of Revelation to the churches. Compromise was rampant. Immorality was rampant. People were worshiping idols and claiming to be Christians. That is unacceptable. Because what did we read earlier? Those who obey Christ prove what? 
that they are his disciples. Those who consistently and willfully live their life according to the standards of Babylon prove that they're not his disciples. Your holiness matters. In chapter 19, in, the, in this picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says that the bride is adorned in bright, pure linen. And it tells us that that bright, pure linen is actually the righteous deeds of the saints. The beauty with which the bride is adorned, though it ultimately points us back to Christ, is beautified even more by our obedience to him. The righteous deeds of the church actually are that bright, fine linen. Because when we obey Christ, he is exalted. When we act like him, he is made known to the world. When we speak like him, he is made known to the world, and he's glorified in that. And that is the idea of the nations bringing their glory into the city. It's this, these nations and tribes and tongues of redeemed people who have been living like Christ, exalting Christ, and they're bringing that glory into his city to then put him on display forever. Your holiness matters. Bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. In this, the Father is glorified. But not only is your holiness essential, your witness matters too. Look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, I've sent my angel to testify about these things. The spirit and the bride say, come. It's this Maranatha call for the Lord to return and redeem us. But at the same time, the spirit and the bride are also saying to the world, come, They're pleading with Christ to return, and they're pleading with the nations to repent. That is our role right now, with the Spirit of Christ, to call the nations to come and receive redemption. Your witness matters. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the parable of ten women who are waiting for the groom to come to the wedding. And five of those women were prepared and they had their lamps filled with oil. And when the groom came in the middle of the night, they were ready to greet him. They were shining in the darkness, waiting eagerly for his arrival. But the five foolish women did not have oil. And they said, our lamps are going out. Can you give us some of your oil? The church must be those five women who are eagerly awaiting Christ's return shining in the darkness, right? We don't await his return hiding in the darkness. We await his return by shining in the darkness. Your witness matters because how has Christ ordained it that sinners come to know him? Romans 10 says, through the declaration of the gospel of Jesus that comes through the mouth of people, our witness matters because the number of God's completed people has not yet been reached, which means there are still people that are going to come to Christ, and the only way they'll do so is when they're presented with the gospel of Jesus, when you bring the scriptures and proclaim it and demonstrate it to them, which is why we go knock on people's doors. It is worth it because they need Jesus, and your witness matters. 
the last thing is that your surrender matters. It is not through our holiness and our witness that we are redeemed, true? It's not through our obedience that we're saved, right? What does the text say? It says, let me find it here. uh, Verse number 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. All the way back to Revelation 7, how do we wash our robes? Do we put them in the washer? No, we dip them in the redeeming blood of Christ. Blessed are the ones who surrender to Christ and are washed by his redeeming blood. Your surrender to him matters. And the offer is on the table. Though he says, evildoers will be evil, the holy will be holy, to some extent, uh, we can't understand the mind of God. We don't, we don't understand the depths of the doctrines of election and predestination and all these things. We don't even ever come close to fully understanding them. But to some extent, God has chosen a number of individuals to come to know him. The Bible is clear on that. He has an elect remnant whom he will save. But we never know in this here and now who those redeemed elect will be. And so our job is to present everyone with the gospel, and the call for everyone is to come and drink the water of life. The call is for everyone who is a sinner to be satisfied in Christ. We don't know who will and who won't. It's not our job. Our job is to bring them to the river. But the surrender of the individual to Christ at the river of his his blood that redeems us is what matters. We've got to wash our robes in his redeeming blood. As the song says, come today, there's no reason to wait. If you haven't plunged yourself into the river of living water in Christ, come today, there's no reason to wait. If you haven't surrendered to him, do it today because the time is near, he is coming quickly. This is an urgent matter. If you're not in Christ, it's urgent that you come to him for salvation. If you are in Christ, it's urgent that you bring others to him. Your holiness and your witness and your surrender matter because Christ is coming quickly. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, I just want to ask that you would take this message that you so lovingly revealed to John to give to us, Lord, that it would stir us up, that it would ignite us to holiness and to obedience with zeal, Lord, that we would be that treasured possession whom you ransomed to be zealous for good works. Lord, I pray that this church would never be bored in this life because we will never run out of things to do for your sake. We will never run out of chances to obey you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir up within us a a zeal and an eagerness because 
those obstacles that we find in front of us oftentimes because we've wandered, Lord, when we are walking in your will, abiding in you, doing your commandments, you're bearing fruit through us and our joy is full. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir us up to that work. Lord, even as we go knock on doors, we're uncomfortable, we feel awkward. Lord, would you fill us with your joy knowing that we have the life-saving message of your gospel. We have the testimonies of our own lives that have been transformed. And Lord, that message is essential to those who don't know you. So please, Lord, give us the urgency to do your work. Give us the urgency to be holy. Let us not grow lazy in doing good. Let us not give in and compromise to the way of the great city of Babylon, which is so opposed to you. Lord, let us walk in purity. Let us walk in holiness. Let us forsake everything that is of this world and live for your name and your glory. Lord, we need your help. We ask for your help. We depend on you for help. And we long for that day when we will be in your presence face to face where death is no more, where locks and lamps are no more, where the unclean is no more. Lord, we long for that day. Let it stir us to holiness, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.
after that. Oh, my goodness. All right, church. Just so you know, when we gather together, the, the roof can be lifted. You don't have to care what the person next to you is thinking. Stop it. All right? This was an awesome message. And if you come away, I'm just going to throw this. If you come away like, man, I didn't really get anything out of today. <laughs> you won't get anything out of anything. You won't. I'm just going to challenge you that way. This is a beautiful text. Church, you're precious to the Lord. You are his city. You are his bride. He describes you as one who's fit with jewelry. You are beautiful. But you're protected. The lines have been drawn. You are his, this is weird, you are his cube. That is the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. The lines have been drawn. You will be protected. You will never suffer his judgment. You're beautiful. You are protected. That, that's good. That's good stuff. And then finally, you're purified. No locks. Right? I don't have to ever worry about someone busting in, you know, who don't belong. Jesus has dealt with all of that for me. We are purified. I love the antibacterial stuff. <laughs> so weird, but so right on. It's like all that stuff dissolves in the presence of God. That's who you are. You are chosen for that. You're precious, beautiful, you're protected, and you're purified. With all of that, who wouldn't want to go out and share the good news? Who wouldn't want to share it? Because you see the people working with you who don't have it. They don't know that they're precious. They get caught in the same stuff that we get caught in. They just don't have anything to counter it, right? They don't have truth to speak into it. No, I'm, I'm precious in the sight of God. I'm precious because of who we are. I'm protected. COVID ain't ultimate for me. It ain't ultimate at all. Jesus is ultimate. I'm protected. Even if COVID takes my life, I'm protected. <laughs> There's just nothing ultimate when Jesus has me, right? And I'm purified. Even on this side of glory, I may fall flat on my face making stupid decisions in the quiet, in the dark spaces. No one knows. But here's what I'm doing just to satisfy my flesh. Jesus says, oh, come unto me. <laughs> Find forgiveness again. Mercy again, again, again. I got somewhere to go even with my mess. He purifies me. This is who we are because of Jesus. Let's go forth this week and share it. I just want to end within Revelation chapter 22, verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Church, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Therefore, based upon all of that hope, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Have an awesome week. Amen.